Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hello everyone, I'm Emma Fowle, Head of Content here at HETS and welcome to another talk supporting digital transformation from Healthcare Excellence Through Technology. Today's talk will be on achieving diversity in the digital response during and beyond COVID-19 and combating health inequality by using digital to bridge the gaps in healthcare. Today our expert speakers will be discussing how digitalization can be used to meet the requirements and enhance care of patients with specific needs. They'll be looking at where the assumptions of many products and services are and how they can result in full service delivery. We'll be unpacking what do we need to do to see real change considering the overarching question of as we provide more digital solutions, are we creating more opportunities or disadvantages? We have a really strong group of expert speakers for you today, all with many years of experience in improving outcomes in diversity and inclusion across healthcare organisations. Our first speaker and moderator today is Shira Chop, co-founder of the Shuri Network. Shira is a GP in East London and has held director and board level roles at a number of UK health organisations and is a trustee of the Ireland Health Trust. She founded the Shuri Network, the first national NHS network for women of colour interested in digital health in 2019 to encourage BME women to lead and engage with digital transformation and to increase diversity in digital leadership. Our second speaker today is coming soon. He's got a few um, technical uh, issues, um, but it's Kevin Holton, Head of Patient Equalities and Health Inequalities at NHS England and Improvement. Kevin has spent his career working in public service, working as a private secretary to three different health ministers and has led various clinical pro programs working at the Department of Health, including respiratory disease, diabetes, and kidney disease. Kevin moved to NHS um, England in 2015 and was responsible for developing an action plan and hearing, um, action plan and hearing loss led work, looking at the relationship between staff and patient experience. And two years ago, he became the lead for equality and health inequalities. Joining him today is Ajioma Isodo, Head of Clinical uh, Service Design at NES Digital Service. She has also worked at the, as a Director of Experiential Learning at the NHS Digital Academy. Ichioma completed her surgical training at Mayo Clinic and holds master's degrees in surgery and public health from the University of Edinburgh, where she also leads the Online Surgical Sciences MSc Communications module. She is a consultant surgeon locum in general surgery at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. Very pleased to welcome also our third speaker, Andrew Griffiths, former CIO for Wales, who recently stepped down at the end of last year. He is now Chief Executive for FedEx, which is the Federation of Informatics Professionals, their body leading professional, professionalism for the healthcare IT community. Our final speaker today is Emma Stone, who leads Good Things Foundation's design, research and communication teams. Three teams which blend service design and innovation with research, evaluation, advocacy and thought leadership. Good Things Foundation's is a social change charity working with community and strategic partners on digital social inclusion. Before joining Good Things Foundation in 2018, Emma was the Director of Policy and Research at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. A very warm welcome to all of our speakers today. Um, though this webinar has been some months in their planning, it seems that it couldn't have landed at a more timely juncture in healthcare and beyond. So I thank everyone for taking the time to both prep and to join us today for this much needed discussion. We will be starting the web webinar shortly. Um, so please note that our speakers will be answering your live questions at the end of their discussion. 
So make sure to add any and all of the new questions you have to the Q&A function and not to the chat function, where there was, will be opportunities to vote up the questions you like. We'll get to as many as we can. I'm, I'm now going to pass over to Shira. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma. Um, so hello, everyone. And welcome to the webinar today. I'm Shara Chok, um, and I'm a GP in Tower Hamlets. Uh, Tower Hamlets is an amazing place to live and work. It's vibrant and it's diverse. Um, and before we start the discussion today, there are two things that I want to mention, which are particularly relevant to what we're about to talk about. The first thing, uh, the first event which has happened in the last seven days is the tragic and very brutal death of George Floyd in America. And what that's done quite rightly is cause a great deal of anger and frustration and fear, and also shone a spotlight on the discrimination and the inequalities that exist, not just in America, but in other countries, including our own. The second thing I want to mention that has occurred in the last couple of days, of course, is the publication of the Public Health England report led by Kevin Fenton. And this, although it didn't really throw up any surprises, it does underline the huge health inequalities that exist uh, in the UK. Uh, the report highlighted that COVID-19, of course, has a disproportionate um, impact on certain communities in the UK, including people of BME origin, those who are more vulnerable, including people who live in care homes, uh, those who are um, older, those who have comorbidities, so illnesses such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease, and those whose occupation exposes them to COVID-19. So how do we move forward from this? What do we do and how do we leverage digital tools to reduce these health inequalities and reduce these terrible, um, the terrible discrimination that is having an impact on our lives? Well, I work in East London and East London, unfortunately, has the highest mortality rates from COVID-19 in the country. We also have very high rates of illnesses affecting our population, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, chronic uh, renal disease, and respiratory problems, all of which we know are risk factors for COVID-19. So this subject that we're about to talk about today is very close to my heart as a resident and as a health practitioner in East London. But I want to say that I have seen how we have used digital tools in East London to reduce and tackle some of these health inequalities. Uh, and very briefly, I want to share with you what we've done in East London. What we've done is invested in primary care networks over the last five to 10 years in Tower Hamlets and in Newham and other parts of East London. What we've also done is to invest in digital infrastructure so that we are much better at collecting and using data to really understand what's happening in our population, what's making our patients and service users ill, and how we can tackle and focus our resources in the right way. The third thing that we've done in East London is to invest in a clinically-led academic GP unit based in a university, which translates all these public health priorities, so what we know is making our patients ill, as well as guidance from NICE and other organizations into practical digital tools that clinicians can use on a daily basis, including electronic templates and electronic dashboards, so we have a much better understanding of what's happening in our communities and we can engage much more effectively as primary care networks to tackle these inequalities. But that's pretty much all I wanted to say. 
I am delighted that we have a wonderful panel today who will be talking about some really important topics. And thank you so much to the audience for submitting your questions in advance. In a minute, I'm going to ask each panel member to speak for about five or six minutes. And some of the topics that you, the audience, have highlighted, and I'll ask the panel to touch on, are, firstly, as we provide more digital solutions, are we creating opportunities or are we instead widening the digital divide? Secondly, in the last few months, we've seen a rapid shift towards a digital first approach. How do we support people who are A, do not have the technology to engage with this revolution and B, do not have the digital skills, the confidence or the trust in the system to engage with digital tools? So in summary, how do we reduce the digital divide and make, maximize the use of digital and technology to reduce health inequalities. So I'm gonna hand over to the panel and Andrew, uh, would you be happy to kick us off today? Great, yes, okay, thank you, Sira. Um, yeah, as you, as you said, this is a really important topic and I think what COVID has done is shone a spotlight on some things that were already there to some extent or other but it has really highlighted some of the inequalities that, that we have. Um, I think I was going to start off by saying historically, I think that um, services have always been more difficult to access for some people than others. Um, and that goes all the way right back to the time when the health service was, was formed. Uh, and in fact, when a, an early piece of work I remember doing, I looked at uh, what was the best predictor of service use for any particular specialty or subspecialty. And of course, the, the biggest um, predictor of service use was service provision. That is, that someone had an interest in a particular subject matter, had developed that such that they ran an outpatient clinic or had specialist nurses. And it, it really sort of proves that little saying that if you build it, they will come. And uh, there's a great deal of our health services and the map of health service provision that has been dictated by historical interests of clinicians. Now, of course, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it does mean that if you've got a particular condition or um, you, you may not be well served in a particular area for historic reasons other than any rational reasons. So I think that uh, digital uh, gives us um, opportunities uh, to exclude people in new ways, uh, just as we have always excluded people for, for other reasons. But it also has a huge potential to include everybody. And I think it's got the potential, and we, we're in charge of this, uh, we can make it uh, so that it does include every, everybody and indeed gets rid of previous inequalities. But it does uh, require some thought and expertise to do that and to ensure that we design services that truly meet the needs of the population. We've also got a lot of data as we develop new digital services because inherently they are typically data rich. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're using that data to evaluate the services and change them as we go through. So I think there's a, there's a big requirement for us to use digital techniques in the way that we design digital services and always be looking to improve them and reform them so that they improve. Um, I think uh, traditionally services have been put in place, they've stayed in place, and the NHS, as we know, is pretty resistant to change. It's like a big spring. And, uh, and it wants to spring back to the way it's always done things. And that's been true about when we implement digital services as well. People always want to go back to the, the way they've done them before. There's a massive resistance. And I'm very hopeful that what COVID has done is challenged some of that, uh, has helped people really move on quite quickly 
to a new normal. Um, and hopefully some of that will remain, although I think we have to be cautious that it doesn't spring back to the way that we've always done things. I should also say that I think that whilst a lot of the questions have been around how do we make sure the population have got the digital skills, and of course that is key, and I'll come back to that in a little moment, it's also true to say that not all digital services need the population to have digital skills. It's possible to design new services with the help of digital technology that doesn't place a burden on the, on the patient or the citizen to actually have this, uh, an increased level of skill to use those. Um, I think uh, if you look at how services have been developed historically, we kind of almost, we, we know it's the case, but it's kind of there in the background. Many of our services have been uh, developed in order to bring a clinician in contact with a patient and also with the patient's note. And so very often it's been the note that's been the constraining factor. And so that note has been, again, historically available in the District General Hospital. And actually it's been easier to move the clinician and the patient than move the note. And so we've designed services like that and much of outpatient services really about how, how we actually get the clinician to look, to pull your note and look at it. Um, and of course, what digital does, it, it gives us huge new opportunities to move that note, that information to wherever we want it so that we can design services that are truly centered around the patient and that are easy for the, the clinician to provide. But all of that needs us to think differently. It means that we need that information available wherever uh, a clinician needs to access it. It also means, I think, that we need an integrated record. It's not good enough that the hospital has got one set of information, the GPs have got another, and social care have got another bit of information. We need all of that to come together truly in order to free up the design of new services to be really responsive to the population needs. I think then, along with the fact that we are able to monitor the uptake of services, that gives us all the tools we need to be responsive to, to the population and to continually evaluate what we're doing. Again, uh, I remember designing services of 20 years ago and you'd have someone to come in after six months to do an evaluation. Once you ticked that box, you never looked at it again. 15 years later, people think that's the way you run the service. And really, digital gives us the opportunity, and we must take it to continually be re-evaluating what we do. I just want to say a little bit, I think, about the workforce and the skills that we need. First of all, I think digital inclusion is a key activity. There's lots of good information that we can point to where people have done a huge amount of work to think this through, because there's quite a lot to think of. You think immediately, or it's quite easy. But actually, there's loads of factors, and there's loads of information available. It's really key. I think we've got a responsibility to use our workforce to help that. And I think there's key roles for people like medical record staff that, that could be retrained to be providing training at outpatients or at the facilities or indeed bringing patients and helping them. And we've got a responsibility to do all those kind of things and that needs to be part of the service design. But I think also the other thing that COVID has done is highlight uh, the roles of the professionals in digital within health service. I think for a, for a long time it has been the new profession or the new emerging profession, but now I think it's emerged because now there's a recognition of how central that the digital professionals are to the delivery of, of good quality health services. And we need to make sure that we, we have those people that are skilled, that are accountable for what they do, and also that are competent in what they're doing. Because lots of the new products and services that we will develop rely on those competencies. I think we've seen with the uptake in digital services, the need for resilience in what we do. So it's no good just to have a, an app that might work occasionally. We need it to be resilient and robust. 
We need the infrastructure that can support it because, again, you don't want to be running a clinic and find it fails halfway through because everybody's running a clinic at the same time and the network capacity is not there. Uh, we want uh, patients to feel confident in the way that we use their data. And that means we need the IG professionals, the cybersecurity experts who are able to design these systems that load balance and do all those kind of clever things to make sure they're resilient. So I'm on a bit of a campaign, really, in my new role to see that the digital professionals working in the NHS are recognised as partners in the delivery of healthcare services, but also that we, the professionals, take uh, responsibility to make sure that we are giving that input that is the correct input, that we say, that we shout out when we think that something has not been uh, done in the right way, because it's very easy for people to think, oh, I'll just set up a Zoom call for my clinic. And indeed, that may be a good thing, but you need to think through more implications of what that means uh, overall. And we need professionals who can come alongside and give guidance and help in how you do those things professionally. But I think uh, the profession has a responsibility to, uh, to be registered, uh, to be responsible for what we do, to engage with the public, to have the public trust and the public good at heart, and to take their part really in delivering healthcare services for the future. So that's it for me at the moment, but I'm sure I can join in afterwards with any questions. Andrew, thank you so much. And really important points you made there about public trust, about how technology is perceived to add value or not. Uh, issues around privacy, around security, around the implications for our workforce and our infrastructure, which I'm sure we'll come back to under the um, question and answer section. So I'm now going to move us on to Dr. Rajoma Rizzotto who is uniquely placed as a clinician. She's a consultant surgeon, but also with a background of working in the US and Scotland. Over to you, Ajoma. Hi, thanks very much, Shara. Um, I think to speak to your, your three points, really, it's that you know, uh, using digital um, should help us take a step back to first, what is it we're trying to accomplish? You know, we're trying to care for people persons, whether they're patients or out in the community. And once we start with that overarching North Star, then what we use digital tools to do is in service of that. Um, so thinking to, you know, how can we do things at pace and scale? But very importantly, and I think Andrew talked about this as well, is how can we meet people where they are? You know, digital is something that can create these structures where we attend to people's digital capability and bring them one step further um, in terms of using products and services. It allows us to allocate our resources between digital and people and some combination of both um, so that we are able to provide an equitable service across different capabilities, across people's sensibilities, and across people's needs. But what I think digital is very well placed to allow us to do is bring data together so that we can understand what, how are we practicing? What are our outcomes? Where do we have a huge gap? Um, because if we're able to integrate our data, whether or not that's an integrated health record, then we have a map of what's happening in health and care. You know, we're able to bring together things like the weather, traffic, pollution, to see how that impacts someone's uh, respiratory disease, whether that's breathing or COPD. We can even bring things down to the level of the person so that they might be able to see um, what locations, uh, what um, you know, temperature, what pollution triggers their worsening respiratory 
disease and we can actually use digital to help us support people, whether that's people doing it themselves or giving them the information that they can bring to their clinician or even people in their home and support to gather um, uh, to move forward and make progress in supporting their, their health. I think very similar to, you know, what you've said and Andrew said is that we have to think very carefully about what decisions we're making for privacy, security, and trust. I think that when people are with clinicians, they have this sense of, you know, the, the information I share here and that people use is protected. And while digital allows us to have bits of our data cross different you know, third parties, health parties, the internet and space, we have to think about um, a term that's called you know, contextual integrity in that even though things can be widely accessible because they're digital, for the context of care, for the context of the law, for the context of you know, my clinical practice, what is the integrity that this data needs to hold to? And then when we're building different devices, applications, you know, um, surveys, research, it has to hew to that kind of contextual integrity because I think it, it, it's very important that people have, the trust is the element of control that people have. And so we have to be able to, to speak to that and provide that for people so that we can get the necessary information to support people um, so that they use services or say services don't work. And that allows us to organize the things that we're doing. I think when we, um, we speak to what's the digital divide and how, how do we reduce the digital divide, again, I think uh, digital allows us to do things at pace and scale, and it might be the way that we provide information to persons, but it also might be the ways in which we organize information so that carers, uh, clinicians, and other specialists are able to bring data together to have a discussion with people or to better understand a phenomenon. And so what I think the pandemic um, has brought to the fore is that, you know, one, our, our workforce is much broader uh, than we've considered. So I think it, it includes our, profession, our professionals in IT, in engineering, um, but it also includes the broader community um, in that out in the population, there are absolutely things that people can do on their own and at home to improve their health and well-being. I think it also highlights this idea that, you know, transforming care is done within an ecosystem. We're talking about users, whether that those are persons or patients, but we're also talking about the experience of employees. Um, and so as we think about building this is, um, there's a second idea um, that's out in the community, something that's been um, highlighted from uh, a couple designers that, that I've been reading around computational thinking, is that we're thinking about people, we're thinking about practices and process, but we're also thinking about data and how we use data and bring data together. So that's design thinking, a bit of technology thinking, a bit of business thinking that we're bringing together. And digital can help us understand data a bit better if we disaggregate things so that we know what's happening at the person level and then we can organize that into the system level so we can understand what's happening in the system translate that all the way down to the person but we also have to understand you know what people's attitudes beliefs and capabilities are so when we're creating value uh, we have an ecosystem view but how we implement it allows us to meet people where where they are um, and so I think those are some of the, um, the, the value of digital 
in that we can we can understand the mechanisms of what's happening much quicker. So Andrew spoke to that, you know, um, you know, we do an evaluation at six months, maybe never again, is that actually some of these intuitive digital products can help us do a dynamic evaluation of things um, that, that's helpful uh, to us. Uh, digital is also another social determinant of health. So access and infrastructure and capability, in addition to general health literacy, I think are things that are becoming much more obvious that these have to be considered as a determinant of, of health for us to address in our interventions and, and approaches. Thank you so much, Rajoma. I really liked what you said at the beginning about you know, what is our North Star? What is it that really should be at the heart of any transformation program, whether it's digital or anything else? And it, it reminds me of what uh, someone said recently, uh, the number of downloads of an app is not a clinical outcome. It is simply the number of downloads. So there is something about numbers and quantitative measures, but also what does it mean in a qualitative way for our um, patients and service users? And I really also like what you said about how do we build in the experience and the stories of our staff, our employees and our service users into the design of new technology. So I'm going to move us on to Emma from the Good Things Foundation because I think Emma will be really well placed to tell us some practical examples of what Good Things and her, their partners have been doing to really make digital much more inclusive. So Emma, welcome and off you go. Hi, thank you, Shira. Hi, everyone. So, um, yeah, my name's Emma Stone. I work for a, a charity called Good Things Foundation, um, and we describe ourselves as being about digital social inclusion. And that's really important because it's people, not tech, that is important to us. Um, and one of the things we do is we run um, an online learning platform that is uh, designed for people with low learner confidence. Uh, confidence, uh, low literacy, about how you take your first and second steps uh, online and that includes uh, some resources around health. Um, and the important thing is that we use that and we see that being used by a network of really um, diverse independent community organizations across the UK. There might be libraries, social enterprises, um, supporting and led by different, uh, in some cases it's different groups, uh, some cases um, different uh, areas. And that's called the Online Centres Network. And that's important because we think the best way you help people to benefit from digital is actually through accessing support by trust people you can trust in a place that you feel uh, comfortable and familiar. Um, and over the last few years, uh, we've been working with um, funding and support from NHS England and then NHS Digital on a programme called Widening Digital Participation. So I'll be saying some things about that shortly, but just to say that at the end of June, we have some um, important evaluation reports coming out about that. So one of the links that Emma Victoria will be sharing is to a Digital Health Lab website, which is where those um, evaluations and reports will be. And so that includes, uh, you know, includes how-to guides as well as uh, findings from the evaluation. Um, I want to really pick up on what Ijeoma was just saying around digital as being one of the um, social determinants. Um, and, I, and I don't um, 
think there has ever been a time where that has come more to the fore. I think there is increasing recognition that digital exclusion is a health inequalities issue. Um, and we can see that in terms of uh, the access to healthcare services. And of course, coronavirus has really underlined that in terms of how can you do a video consultation with a GP if you don't have a laptop, if you don't have a phone. Um, so it's about access to health services, but also importantly, the access to the online support and information and apps that help many of us uh, with our own agency around our health and around our well-being. And critically, digital is becoming um, absolutely essential for a whole wide range of things around education, employment, accessing benefits, around community participation and social connectedness, and all of those linked with the wider social determinants. Um, having worked uh, for many years around issues of poverty and injustice, um, I'm not saying that digital is any sort of silver bullet or the solution to inequalities. We're talking about significant structural disadvantage and barriers. But what I am saying is that um, without properly making a concerted and coordinated effort to address digital exclusion, we will all be widening those health inequalities. We will be deepening um, those uh, divides um, and making that, that task um, of inclusion and equalities even harder to achieve. Um, I, I think that digital inclusion is a solvable problem. Um, uh, I think, um, so, what, so some of the questions that have, come in, have been coming through the panel have been, um, absolutely right it's been about how in the current context do we try and support people who literally do not have the devices or they may have a device and it's not an up-to-date device uh, or because of situations of poverty they cannot afford uh, the wi-fi and broadband and the data um, and so we have been part of an industry-led initiative called devices.now um, that, um, that has developed a process to be able to distribute uh, free devices and data and digital skills support out to people who really need it. And it's, um, it is already making a huge difference for the 1,600 people who've received a device so far. 1,600 compared to the 1.9 million UK households uh, who lack internet access is a drop in the ocean. Um, and so what we really need is, is funding and support to be, to be able to um, increase the impact. Um, I can just give an example though of uh, one of the people that we supported was through a community partner called Skills Enterprise in London. Um, Catalingam is 42 years old. He wanted his story to be told. Uh, he's NHS vulnerable category A. He had up until lockdown been able to access the internet through Skills Enterprise, a community center. They knew him, he knew them, he could access the internet, he could access other support. And lockdown locked him out of all of that. It meant that he wasn't able to get online to order prescriptions. He wasn't able to um, have the social contact he needed. And so that device has absolutely made a huge difference to his health and to his mental well-being. Um, we know we've got 8,000 people who are waiting uh, to receive um, devices. 
Um, so that's so if you um, again, there's a link to the impact report for devices.now from the first telling the story of the first eight weeks. Um, and if anyone does want to support it, we are actually doing some crowdfunding as well, alongside trying to um, put in bids for government and other charitable foundations to support that. But it's, it's one example of we have ways we can get devices out to people along with digital skills support. Um, the other thing that we've been doing over, um, we've been doing a programme uh, funded by NHS England, which completed in March, and that's been around widening digital participation in health. Um, the first three years was, was an at scale approach. So it was taking the online learning and using uh, help, you know, introducing people uh, to take those initial steps in terms of um, whether it's GP, online services or NHS website. But more recently, we've been going deeper and supporting pathfinders. And, and again, to the point of diversity inclusion, you, you co-design in the people that you want to make sure aren't locked out even more. So these have been pathfinders working with uh, homeless communities, working with people with learning disabilities, uh, working in areas of uh, high ethnic diversity, um, and uh, working with groups who might face multiple barriers to accessing health services, perhaps because of substance addiction, homelessness, um, co complex um, disadvantage. Um, and one of the, one of the uh, most promising models that we've developed through that has been the idea of digital health hubs. And again, it blends these principles of you go to where people are, uh, places that they uh, trust, um, these are places where you're responding also to what matters to individuals. So your starting point is not, I want to make sure you can use my NHS app. Your starting point is what matters to you. Here's how we can start to build your confidence to go online to find out about this. And again, you just hear brilliant stories of the difference that makes in terms of people being able to then move on to manage their own conditions, being able to get trusted advice from the NHS websites, being able also to um, address issues like loneliness um, and isolation. Um, so I've got a lot more that I can say about that and some more practical examples of some of the digital health hubs that have been part. Um, one thing, to, a couple of last things to note, given um, who's likely to be in the virtual room, is that digital health hubs work best where they're really, where they're kind of really embedded in communities. And a lot of the most successful ones have been led by community organisations. Um, and some of them have uh, struggled uh, to develop links with clinical commissioning groups, GP practices. So there's still a question of we have assets in the community, people with expertise and reach, and still I think some of the barriers to, uh, to collaborative working at a local level are getting in the way of really making a difference. And the other point is we've talked about workforce a bit. And actually one of the insights that came through some of the pathfinders was not underestimating that within the health and care workforce and different roles, people may themselves lack digital confidence and lack digital skills. Um, and that then impacts on, on how, they're, how they feel and how they're able to support people who might be patients or carers or citizens to benefit from using digital. So th thank you very much.
Emma, thank you so much for giving us some really good practical examples of what's happening. Um, and I'm just uh, minded of the statistics uh, that we know that 20% of people over 65 don't have a smartphone. So instantly one in five of people who are older people who are at high risk of long-term conditions and COVID-19 potentially face a risk of being excluded. I think as a GP in Tower Hamlets, I've seen digital hubs being set up um, in the community, not in hospitals, but in libraries and idea stores. I believe um, good things may have been working in East London as well with community, so thank you very much. I know Age Concern is doing their bit for people at, uh, in the older age group. And I think a really valuable point you made about workforce and how do we equip our workforce with the skills and the confidence to really maximize the use of technology on, on a day-to-day -day basis, but also uh, to educate people around them uh, within their own communities and their families and their friends. So our last speaker today, I'm delighted to introduce is Kevin Holton uh, from NHS England. Um, he's a guru on patient engagement and patient experience. Um, so it would be great to hear from Kevin about what NHS England is doing to engage certain communities, including BME communities, who we all know are at higher risk of um, poor outcomes from COVID-19. Kevin. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone. And the <coughs> advantage or slight disadvantage of going last is that um, there's a danger that I just repeat what a lot of other people have said. So uh, my, uh, my talk, I think, has been significantly reduced by uh, previous uh, content. So I'll just pick up on some themes, I think, from what's been said and just talk about kind of inequalities uh, as well in the work that we're doing. So, um, so I think we've been talking about um, the importance of co-design, about what ma matters most to, uh, to our communities. Uh, I think one of the real, really positive things that's come out of COVID is the, uh, the community and voluntary sector uh, reaction to COVID and how it is that they've supported uh, their local uh, communities and that that I think I've kind of picked up through a lot of engagement activity with uh, a lot of voluntary sector uh, organizations that we talk to on a on a daily uh, basis. Um, I think that our track record on technology uh, isn't that great um, that we set up now an organization NHSX who uh, will be taking forward the kind of technological aspects of work around uh, the uh, NHS. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll keenly uh, await some of the outputs from NHSX, because I know that it has in the past uh, been a challenge for those developing technology to, uh, to ensure that it um, meets the needs of all communities rather than just a selected uh, few. Um, I think that there are some significant benefits and opportunities, and I'll give you a couple of um, patient stories because I knew that uh, I was uh, coming into this uh, session. I asked a GP uh, in Sheffield just to give me a couple of examples of the positive and ne negative kind of aspects of utilisation of technology and I'll run through those uh, in a moment. Um, some, uh, there was a discussion about um, how technology can be useful so I 
when I was running the respiratory program, it reminded me that I worked with a few people in um, Brighton that had set up uh, a, uh, an app that linked in with uh, air quality. And so what that did is it monitored air quality and then if there was going to be uh, a day before, if there's going to be poor air quality, uh, then that sent out a message to people with respiratory disease and it alerted them to that fact and then they could decide what uh, what action they could take so whether they could stay they should stay indoors for example or what other further action that they could, they could take so so i think there's some really kind of positive things that have been done i think the challenge for us is that um, what they tend to do is they tend to be rel relatively isolated and they're not systematized and so therefore that's a real challenge for us is that we've got some really good isolated pockets of good practice um, but what we don't have is uh, that embedded across uh, the NHS and I'm sure that you'll hear uh, today of some some uh, examples uh, of that so for me how it is that we can systematize some of the technology that we're uh, we're introducing I think just kind of picking up on the health um, inequalities issues that you picked up earlier you know we came into the pandemic on the back of the marmot 10 years on uh, report that identified that life expectancy had stalled over the past 10 years it identified that um, the amount of time that people spent in poor health uh, had increased in certain areas over the last 10 years uh, and uh, it didn't the Martin report didn't make a direct link but whenever he spoke on public platforms he said that he thought that there were there was a very close link between uh, inequalities and austerity and the impact that that had had on the wider determinants of health something that I've been calling for for some time is is to see how it is that we can develop a much more kind of joined up approach to how it is that we address these issues given the kind of wider determinants and I think that we're seeing that with the impact of COVID on particular communities, especially those who are elderly, those who are living in care homes, and those from particular populations, so from BME populations, and also from those from inclusion groups and living in high, high areas of deprivation. I think for patients, digital health can, can mean better access to information and care. Um, I think it can mean increased convenience, uh, and more opportunities for greater control uh, uh, and shared care. And for health and social care systems, it can mean more effective delivery of care, better outcome and re reduced costs. But as, of course, we've identified um, and has been identified by the speakers, many of the people who could most benefit from digital services uh, are the least likely to be uh, online. And we've we've heard some of the challenges and the barriers around access and confidence and skills uh, and the numbers of people uh, who don't have access to the internet or the five million people that never go online. Um, digital technologies will not deliver improvements in pro productivity on their own. Uh, indeed, without careful implementation, they can create inefficiencies, uh, staff frustration, and even threaten the quality of care. And I don't think we invest enough in areas like culture change for staff uh, and service users. Um, there's been a significant amount of innovations that have been introduced uh, as a result of COVID, um, including the uh, increasing use of uh, primary care online services. 
And we're now seeing the introduction of technology for uh, the track and trace program. And there's been a recent report, I think, from the Health Foundation on, on that. Um, and so there's been some good work done. Voluntary sector organisations working nationally and locally uh, have supported people with the provision of uh, technology. Uh, and we've seen a significant amount of uh, work being unde undertaken in different uh, communities. Um, I'd like to pay testament to organisations like the Good, uh, Good Things Foundation, because I think that they're doing some brilliant uh, work. And uh, I know that NHSEI have been kind of supporting them uh, to, uh, to test different uh, interventions in different communities. Just giving you very quickly kind of two um, patient stories from the GP uh, in Sheffield. So these are her words. Uh, we had a telephone conversation uh, where uh, we discussed home blood pressure readings. Uh, we made a plan for further investigation, started a new medication for blood pressure and arranged uh, follow-up home blood pressure readings to be sent by digital uh, technology in four weeks time. This was, this was remarkably straightforward and would definitely have needed two consultations for a non-English speaker with less health lit literacy. One now and another in four weeks to ask for the repeat readings. And then the third to explain what needed to be done next. Uh, I might be able to manage all of this uh, by one further SMS if the blood pressure is controlled. And then another story talking about language barriers um, a nurse practitioner told me about a Roma woman on several medications. She was confused about her medication. She bought in her uh, boxes of tablets one drug, Ramifipril, for hypertension, uh, had been used by the pharmacist, pharmacist in two different uh, boxes with different coloured capsules in each box. So she, she could not read the drug label, so she had taken one of each every day. So I think that they're some of the kind of real challenges that we're facing. So uh, I think there are real challenges. COVID has amplified, I think, the stark inequalities that exist uh, in the country. Uh, we've seen a disproportionate impact on our staff, uh, on our communities, and those areas, those living in areas of high deprivation. And as we move what, to what people are calling the recovery and the re uh, restoring critical services phase, uh, this will, give, I hope, give us an opportunity to review some of those innovations uh, and solutions that have been introduced to make sure and ensure that they're accessible uh, and uh, in an appropriate format. And we also support our staff uh, and those uh, with the worst outcomes. Thank you, Kevin. Um, really good to hear some patient stories. And thanks for sharing that. And I was particularly struck by the story you told us about the Roma woman and the safety issues that can arise when there are language barriers, for example, reading prescription instructions. And there have been quite a few questions from our audience about um, issues about language, particularly for BME communities, because we know that um, people from a BME background are at higher risk from COVID-19. So would you be able to comment on what NHS England uh, are doing specifically to overcome some of those communication and language issues? Yeah, so um, I think what we've, uh, what we've tended to do, so it's slightly complex because Public Health England tend to put out most of the information uh, around um, some of, so they've put the 
some of the guidance out around, for example, social distancing and some of the kind of more uh, front-facing work through uh, NHS.net. And I think that there's been a, quite a significant challenge for us uh, to get those uh, things like that kind of translated into different languages. And I think what has tended to happen because uh, of the lack of kind of pace of movement at national level is that other organisations have stem tended to kind of step into that arena. So I know what's happened, for example, is that Doctors of the World have produced quite a significant amount of translated uh, material. There's been quite a lot of work done by a lot of voluntary sector uh, organisations to translate material. Uh, I think the other challenge for us is that what we haven't also effectively thought about is uh, effective communication channels and how it is that people from different communities access different communication channels. And that's something, again, uh, when uh, we were starting to look at the impact of COVID on and the disproportionate impact on BME communities. And I think that started when we saw a kind of clustering of activity in, um, in uh, Birmingham, uh, which was prior to the uh, commission of the Public Health England uh, review and various academics were kind of reporting on uh, impact. Um, I think that uh, quite a few of the kind of local organisations working in those localities uh, were much better linked in to the different communication channels that people from BME communities and other communities use. So we've started now to, to do that. Uh, we've started to ensure that uh, our uh, what it is that we're presenting is much more representative of our staff and the communities that we represent. So I think that we've done a bit of that, but I think there's quite a significant way, uh, way to go for us working at a national level in order to address that. Thank you, Kevin. Um, and I think, Ajoma, you wanted to come in on the same point? Yeah, I think that one of the things that digital helps us see is that we can use lots of different um, distribution methods. You know, we don't actually have to choose a channel um, in the fact that if we can do things at pace and scale, then we can pay more attention to things that we have to do traditionally analog in that you might have to have people go door to door and deliver information to people that aren't on digital because you know that it's not getting to them. You can look at television, you can look at radio, you can look at things that people traditionally use because the cost to do some of those things may be much less and we can actually focus our very limited resources on getting things, you know, getting things to that last mile. If people are very much on radio, look at a different, uh, you know, specific program, then try to uh, concentrate some of our efforts to, again, meeting people where they are. Um, Emma mentioned uh, quite a lot of work that she's been doing um, and her organizations have been doing around bringing people's digital skills up. And actually, those things need to work in parallel as you get information to people in the way that they're best able to appreciate it. And sometimes that might be um, targeting people that are adjacent to them. So looking at what does their social support use? You know, is it grandma or grandpa that learns about things that are happening through a grandchild? You know, so is some of your information going to target the grandchild to be able to get to, you know, mom and dad or grandparents? So I think, you know, digital allows us to see that we don't have to necessarily choose a distribution channel, but we have to make sure that our distribution is inclusive and meets people exactly where they are. Thank you, Rajoma. Uh, so, I've got a question 
for Emma uh, from Syra. How can the NHS openly work alongside such great charities and organizations like Good Things Foundation? Are there challenges and barriers preventing more collaborative working like this? Um, Syra, thank you. That is a um, brilliant uh, question. And, um, and if it's the Syra, I think uh, it is, then Syra is, is one of um, the most fantastic advocates of digital inclusion and, and um, improving diversity and uh, working at a community level and just making a real difference. So, um, so yes, it is. So Syra, uh, Syra thank you very much. Um, so, um, so I think, so I'll go kind of going back to the start is I think um, that this area around digital inclusion, it is and it has to be a solvable problem. Um, and I think it's really um, great at, to see, you know, the chat panel is full of um, a lot of reflections around the things that we know are really difficult and how do you make this work? Um, and I loved actually what Ijeoma was just saying about actually, um, you, you both have some of this is about what digital enables you to do differently and reimagine differently how you might um, approach uh, different issues and different challenges. But at the same time, going back to what I was saying before, some of the answers and the solutions lie in um, things that we've been saying for a long time and, and things that, um, that are around, I think about the local links with communities and going where people are and um, enlisting and resourcing uh, those who are best placed with the trusted reach and those relationships to be able to support um, local digital health inclusion. Um, and so for me, there's something both at a national level um, around how obviously it would be brilliant and fantastic um, for Good Things Foundation to be able to continue to have uh, national level support from NHS England to take forward more work on digital social inclusion. So we, we're, we're at the end of our current funded programme, we're doing the evaluation reports. But I think the context of coronavirus has just really highlighted how much more there is to do and we think this idea around digital health hubs is something that really could be scaled and 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 i think there are two options here in an ideal world if there were the strength of local level relationships between local nhs other community-based nhs providers care sector and community organizations if those were all in place locally then actually the scale problem would be solved because you could rely on local um, commissioning frameworks to get that right and that has to be the vision here. I think my, uh, my anxiety is that we're not there yet, that digital health inclusion and the idea of digital health hubs is still something that is emerging, there's still value in having a nationally networked and a national response to digital health inclusion, um, especially to avoid this divide getting deeper and getting more entrenched because there is no putting the genie back in the bottle of digital. Uh, we will continue uh, to drive it out. There will be more, um, more use of digital. Um, and, and in many ways, again, the pandemic will have accelerated the digital transformation going on uh, nationally and uh, locally. So, um, so that, that would be my answer and great question, Syra. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. And I think we need to make sure that, as you said, it needs to be built into commissioning intentions as we 
move towards integrated care systems across England, for example, we need to make sure that's at the heart of what integrated care systems are uh, set up to do. As Ajama said, what is the North Star that we're all trying to achieve? So it is up to all of us to make sure that we keep pushing for this. Um, now we have a question from Graham about money. Um, there is a view that digital is a way to save money or to cope with increased demand through efficiencies. It's an argument I've heard particularly in primary care. What do the panel think about this? Is there any evidence that would shed light on this hypothesis? Um, so I'm going to use my chair's um, uh, power and kick that discussion off before bringing in members of the panel. So just using Tower Hamlets, because that's where uh, I live. So uh, I mentioned at the beginning, we've been investing in digital infrastructure for the last 10 years. Um, and working with our clinical effectiveness group to use digital tools. Uh, they've estimated that over three years and across three CCGs in East London, we've managed to prevent around 300 heart attacks and strokes. Uh, and the money question is how much have we saved? Well, uh, the estimation is that we've saved around nine million pounds, but more importantly, uh, more important than the money is what have we saved those 300 patients from? So we've saved potentially 300 people from going through a life-changing event. We've um, prevented them and their families going through a very traumatic episode of having a heart attack or a stroke. And I think for me as a clinician, that's what digital is all about. So would anyone else on the panel like to come in on the money? Andrew, um, perhaps? Yeah, happy to. Um, I, think, I think trying to write a business case that's got sort of money coming back to the organization directly within 12 months or 24 months or 36 months is really difficult and nigh on impossible. As much as people have tried to do that, I've, I've not seen many cases that have delivered that in quite that way. I think you're absolutely right. This is about how we improve um, patient uh, services to patients, how improve healthcare and health outcomes. And I think we all know, don't we, that wh where, whether it's, um, um, what, whatever you do in healthcare, you actually open yourself up to greater demand because the demand seems to be infinite. So if you save some time somewhere, something else will happen with that time. Now you've got to trust that that time has been used usefully somewhere else. So I've seen, for example, cases built on the fact that a nurse is going to save three minutes a day and then they add up the three minutes a day for 40,000 nurses and say that that's equivalent to 20 billion pounds or something ridiculous. Now we all know that 20 billion isn't available because it's just three minutes time for every nurse. Um, so there's all these cumulative little bits of, of benefit. And I think we have to work on the basis that, that people who are, are, will do good things with their time and they will find more useful things to do than chasing down a note or whatever it was that they were doing before. And we're actually improving the health service. So, so that's a long way of being very negative and saying, it's really difficult to make the financial case, absolutely. Um, but there are proxies for it, which you can use. And I think it's all about making the argument that's not necessarily a financial one. Thank you, Andrew. I think Kevin wants to come in, followed by Ajoma. Yeah, so I'll just read some figures that uh, from our, the outputs of our widening dig digital participation uh, um, programme. So that um, trained staff to be digital health champions, connected local community organisations, uh, worked with and enabled local charities already engaged with 
particular communities and uh, picked up issues around social prescribing. And so uh, what they found was of those who received uh, support, 59% uh, of people were better able to access and use online health uh, information. 65% more felt more informed about their health. 51% uh, had used the internet to explore ways to improve mental health and well-being. Um, so strategies for mental health, managing mental health, and 21% made fewer GP appointments as a result of accessing online information. Um, and they concluded that overall digital inclusion interventions had shown a return on investment of £6.40 for every £1 uh, spent. Um, so uh, there is, I think, some uh, information uh, out there. Um, sometimes I think, as Andrew says, uh, is making the leap between impact and financial savings uh, is probably a leap of faith. Um, but, uh, but I think that there is some information out there. And I think BT uh, and also Ipsos Mori have also done some work around um, uh, cost uh, effectiveness working in other uh, areas. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, th I think I wanted to do was just support both of those things. Even if, e even if the, if you have savings, even if you repurpose someone's time or use it for something else, that is resource that you're using to continue to care for people, which is really important in that, you know, the NHS um, across England and Scotland is a, is a public organization. And so they're looking to try and use the resources that they have to best effect. That will not always be a resource that's contained within the NHS. But as Emma was saying, if you recruit, you know, third sector, charity, even SME partners to help, you know, overall improve health and, you know, better outcomes and better care. What you are doing by having savings in one area is that you're able to direct that resource to another area. And that will keep happening because we'll always be we'll always be behind. You know, there are always going to be challenges to providing quality, safe care. And if we can shift the limited resource to where it's most effectively needed, then I think that's a win-win. Um, you know, I think absolutely clinicians see that, you know, this time that's freed up then gets directed for them to look after other things or nurses look after other people. And I think that's a brilliant bonus if we can use our resources more efficiently um, provide jobs and support patients, then I think that it's not really a zero-sum uh, outcome. Yeah. Can, I, can I just jump in, sorry, yeah. um, I, I think that's a, a very good point, really, that I think we need to be making business cases based on efficiency rather than cost savings, because one, that's more representative of the truth. And actually, it's quite compelling, actually. We don't always have to have a budget-free app direct, very directly. And I also agree with Kevin. I think there's mass, I, by the way, I absolutely believe that digital will make huge savings across the system, but it's that big thing in the NHS is how do you link, I'm a budget holder, will my budget have the saving? Well, probably unlikely, but someone else's budget might get the saving, <laughs> but good luck getting that. Sure, Emma. you want to come in? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so Kevin was brilliant in terms of kind of drawing on the, um, uh, the return on investment calculation that we'd produced for the widening digital participation for the first phase, which was that, uh, um, uh, which was three over three years. I, th I think, though, it, it's 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 really really difficult because 
um, um, to, to a certain extent, some of this is about time frames. Um, over what period of time are you making a difference? And that links uh, to, to what Idioma has been talking about is there in terms of also where any savings materialize. We know that at the local level, it's, I'm not surprised that the question came up about um, a return on investment, social return on investment, because we know people are having to put that business case together. So we did do that calculation and we did the calculation using kind of the amount of time that um, might be saved in terms of not visiting a GP and not going to A&E. Um, but what we also know is that part of this is, is some of the reduction to accessing health services means you actually do want to see some people taking those steps who might not otherwise have done so. So, it, so I think it's such a difficult area because you find yourself creating calculations because you know people need to make a business case and yet actually um, it, that kind of goes against some of the ethos of what we're trying to do. We're trying to improve quality and we're also trying to reduce health inequalities from widening even further and give people that sense of agency um, as well about their own health and well-being. And, and so I think with that in mind, there's actually a bigger question, which is, a, which is a barrier for all of us, I think, in terms of the case making, which is that at the moment, um, statistics around digital inclusion, skills, capabilities, who's online, who's got uh, what access, are, are, are really variable. So there are a few questions that our, uh, Office for National Statistics produces, Ofcom does a, a good job uh, around adults, media use and literacy, but that's not explicitly in relation to health, of course. And we rely very heavily as a digital inclusion sector on Lloyd's Banking Group's Consumer Digital Index, which came out, um, the latest report came out just a, a couple of weeks ago. And that's excellent because it does look at uh, behaviours and it looks at skills and capabilities. But there isn't actually a data set that helps us understand and look more accurately at the impacts of digital exclusion in relation to anything to do with actual health outcomes. So we, we draw the correlations because these are correlations that are around uh, poverty and they're around educational attainment, but there's a really important piece of work. And if anyone out there is interested in working on this is how we bring together the data sets that are used around health inequalities as well as access to health services and the data sets that are around uh, digital uh, use and exclusion because otherwise at a national level we're not doing a good enough job of tracking the extent to which digital um, exclusion is widening health inequalities and access to health services. Thank you, Emma. I'm going to move us on because there are lots of questions flooding in and I'm quite conscious that we're going to run out of time quite soon. Um, the issue of language has been raised again by uh, Ellie Taylor um, and it's a question, is language, is language barrier on NHS X's radar? Uh, the, question, the answer is yes. So um, people like myself and Galib Khan have been speaking to NHS X and NHS England since March about the importance of making sure that uh, language barriers are considered when developing new technologies such as the NHS app and the contact tracing app um, and also not just language barriers but cultural issues. How do you communicate key advice to 
groups in the community, for example, people over 65, people with learning disabilities, people with mental health issues, people from different BME communities. So the short answer is the, the issue should be on the radar of NHSX, Public Health England, and I think as Kevin has said, it's very definitely on the radar of NHS England. Another question that's come in from Ruth Adekoya. Uh, when discussing digital divides, we need to include the importance of recruiting BME colleagues in digital organizations. What are your suggestions for improving the representation of BME workforce in the healthcare digital sector? Uh, and I'll, I'll kick that off uh, because um, Ijoma and I are both on a steering group of the Shuri Network. And this is a network that was launched last year to improve and support um, diversity in digital health. Uh, all of us use technology every day to look after patients, whether we're in the healthcare or social care sector. 77% um, of the NHS workforce is female, and one in five of the NHS workforce is from a BME background. And yet when you see who's leading digital transformation programs, it's, very, it's almost never a female BME person. And so we need to make sure that this imbalance is addressed. We need to understand why women, particularly BME women, do not seem to find this an attractive career option. We need to explore um, what learning needs and developmental needs they need, and that's what we're doing with the Shuri Network. We need to actually challenge the system to do better on diversity and inclusion. Because it's one thing being appointed to a leadership role, it's another thing altogether um, getting the support to stay in it. Ijoma, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's about this idea um, I've learned from a co colleague who leads um, product inclusion out in uh, at Google. And, you know, uh, she talks about, Annie Jean Baptiste talks about designing for everyone, but very much understands that designing for everyone means you ha have to understand what are the major groupings and categories of people. So one of that is in the way you go out and co-design with people is that you understand what are their attitudes, what are their beliefs, what are the culture, and how do you tap into the motions that are needed for your products and services. So that's on the one end of the user. And then if you step back at the employee or the people designing things, again, you still have to get proximate, is that you have to understand what's the diversity of thought, of experience that you need that can be embodied in diverse people or bring in diverse ideas. So I think once you understand those two levels and then you start at the workforce it's how do you bring people in you know how do you write that into the way you work whether that's initiatives policies or mandates that needs to be embedded in the way you bring people in and the way you acculturate and socialize them within your organization so again there has to be a process that's embedded that people are there's accountability for. There has to be accountability and you can solve that accountability in a variety of different ways, but it has to be embedded in the way you work, how you bring people in, how you keep them in, and it has to work for your organization. And I know lots of different organizations are struggling, I shouldn't say struggling with that, but struggling with that, finding a way to do that, and there has to be a concerted and deliberate effort to do that. Um, with the pandemic, I think people are starting to to think about how you do that at scale and relatively quickly. Um, so hiring people, bringing them in, understanding that people are trained. Um, and that, that's something that we all need to think about, but it's not just, um, it's not just uh, 
diversity and bringing people in, but really embedding that in the way you work and produce uh, products and solutions. Thank you. So we had a really good question that came in about what are the similarities and differences between the response, the digital response to COVID-19 between different countries? So the response between Scotland, England, Wales and the US. Uh, and what models are you keen to continue in the future as we come out of the crisis? I say a little bit about um, my experience from Wales. Is that helpful? Oh yes, that um, would be good. Yeah, okay. So I, I think there's been um, different reactions based on possibly the legacy positions in different countries of what they've already got. So a lot of the response to COVID has been leveraging what has been in, uh, in train for many years to some extent. And so that goes to infrastructure, um, the ability to do, to do things like make the GP record in other locations, uh, remote working, those kind of responses. So I would say probably in, in Wales and, and clearly it's, a, it's smaller, so it's, it's easier to do some of these things. There's been the ability to look at the, the record, whether that's a social care GP or secondary care record, um, wherever any, any clinician can have access to, to that with the appropriate permissions, etc. So what that enables you to do is obviously be able to identify the patient more easily. So I think one of the benefits there, and I think it was in the news last week, was around the fact that you're able to identify when you test someone who they are and therefore you're able to link that test back to that person and any person treating them can see that result. So of course that needed the master patient index to be in place, the clinician index to be in place, the IG agreements to look at the GP record, the agreements between the different health organisations to share that test results regardless of where the test was requested from. So those things take a while to get in place so I think there's a degree in which the immediate response has been, how do we leverage what we've already got in train? I think that's put a bit of pressure on people to do that, but I think it's demonstrated that some of this actually takes design. And I, I would make a plea for design coherence in all of this, because the last thing we want is sort of 20 million different digital solutions, all that require the citizens to act in different ways with different passwords. What we want is, uh, is digital to be simplifying access to healthcare, not making it more complicated. But that does mean there's design and it does need professional input to help that and to think about all the design implications. So I would say if I could be slightly thinking, uh, looking at some of the English response on the test, testing and treat thing. Um, one of the things that was overlooked, I think, was that whole thing about how do you link back to the, to the patient. Patient identity is key doesn't happen by accident. It seems a simple thing, but actually it's very complicated. So you need a professional alongside you to actually help and guide you through the morass of all the technicalities to make sure that all works properly. So, sorry, I'll, I'll shut up at that point. Okay. Emma, did you want to come in? Um, I, I could say a little bit about um, access to devices and how that's been different across the nations, if that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so obviously I've mentioned devices.now which is an industry-led initiative, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport supporting it but currently not any government uh, funding uh, for that. Um, in Wales the Welsh government already um, 
procures digital inclusion support through a great program called Digital Communities Wales. And what they've done is they've provided some additional support through Digital Communities Wales uh, so that loans of devices can be made uh, to care homes and hospices um, and to other vulnerable groups, not out into the community, um, however. So people who are isolated and in their own homes in the community um, don't yet have access to devices other than uh, through devices.now and there are a few uh, community partners in Wales that are receiving devices uh, there. Um, Northern Ireland, uh, uh, there have been, um, again, they're part of devices.now. In Scotland, I, I think there's been a very strong response in, in Scotland. The Scottish Government is funding Connecting Scotland. Uh, they're working with the Scottish Council of Voluntary Organisations and others, and they've put uh, funding in so that um, devices can go out. Their target is 9,000 uh, of the most uh, vulnerable um, individuals who are kind of in the shielded groups in the community who are digitally excluded. So hopefully that's helpful information. We, we've been linking. Uh, I think the other positive thing to say is across the UK, we are all linking and supporting each other and trying to share learning because obviously this is something that none of us uh, um, as organisations have done before on this scale. Mm -hmm. Kevin or Adroma, did you want to comment on that from a Scottish or American or English perspective? Um, so, uh, if I can just come back to the previous question around whether you're having a discussion around business case, I, I tend, I, what I tend to find is, is if people want to do something, then they get on and do it. If they, they're slightly reticent to do it, then they ask for a business case and uh, evidence. Um, so, um, uh, I think that I, when uh, I was looking at the initially looking at the issues around um, uh, impact for BME communities. There was some quite interesting uh, work going on in America. I don't know whether that has continued or not. It's about developing kind of risk assessment frameworks for particular uh, communities and commu particular groups. So we have one, we have a kind of assessment, risk assessment tool for diabetes, for example, that has been um, developed. And they were looking in America, I think, to, to kind of broaden that out to uh, the risk factors for BME uh, communities. So I think that there's probably some really interesting work that's gone on across Europe and across different countries that we could probably harvest and uh, think about uh, utilising in different health systems. Adroma, any last comments? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, within Scotland, our our approach that our organization has used has, you know, been privy to the ways we are connecting across different types of partners, you know, so that's government, the health boards and local authorities. Um, that has been um, in new ways because of this being a public health pandemic is that it touches all areas of the country. And so, as Andrew was saying, you know, putting together the information governance is paramount because even though we are working, you know, in the formal clinical system, we're also working outside of that. And I think that's um, asked us to also think at a higher level, which, which speaks to what's the business case, but I think more importantly, what's the health impact that we are trying to get to? 
and then aligning um, our work from there. And some of the challenges that have, that has unearthed is that, you know, we have lots of organizations that are doing similar things, some related things, and how do we align all of those so that we have a picture across the whole, the whole country, but also protect people's privacy, also generate trust and rapport. And that working at scale, I think is quite a, um, a different way of working and thinking, you know, because we're thinking about uh, working across business and academia and, you know, people out in the community, people as persons, not just people as, as, as patients. And so, you know, should everyone have access to all that information all the time? Probably no. Um, but how do we stand something like that up in times of a pandemic and then potentially think about shutting that down? And so I think it's raised lots of questions about how we work together and share information um, that just have to be done very deliberately. Um, we took an approach with one of the, the, the products and services that's out there around um, taking care of people in shielding and opted for an SMS messaging approach in that when we looked at who was being asked to shield, what were the likely um, technology capabilities and structures that they had. This is where we could catch a, a, a long variety of people, but also we're able to point to the ways in which we would not be able to support people and we're able to present that back so that could be picked up by other organizations and services. So I think that that's important is recognizing where are the gaps making that available so that people can pick up because as we've heard about things around language and communication and culture i think there's a there's a possibility i've seen some work out of scotland um, but also work around the who where they kind of put a call out to people saying this is where we cannot meet the need we don't have capacity are there people that can do that so it's a, a community and social thing in addition to a government and academia thing Thank you. Uh, so I think the last comment, perhaps, um, from Kevin. Um, as you're closest to the mothership of NHS England, um, what uh, are the next steps forward? What's the direction of travel? Um, can you give us any uh, idea of coming? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't oversell my uh, importance. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, so I think that there are some uh opportunities for us so we haven't talked about the concept of social value uh and uh anchor institutions uh significantly so i think that there's a real opportunity to use uh better use the kind of nhs pound in investing in local uh communities and um getting NHS organisations to free up resources to invest in, uh, in local uh, communities. I think sometimes there's a bit of a reticence, you know, the NHS feels that it's, it's its money and it has to be in the lead on some of these things. So I think pursuing the kind of value, the concept of NHS, uh, uh, of social value and anchor institutions is one opportunity. I think that the government have been talking about the levelling up uh, agenda um, I don't know necessarily they quite know what that means yet so I think that there's an opportunity for us to kind of influence their thinking in that space. Um, I think with the advent of strategic 
transformation par partnerships and integrated care systems and primary care networks. I think that gives us an opportunity at, uh, at a, a more local level to bring a more strategic approach to how it is that we're addressing some of these things so that we don't have kind of isolated pockets of activity. Um, so I think that that brings us also some um, opportunities. Uh, I think that as we move into the kind of recovery and whatever the new normal might look like, uh, again, that, that will give us an opportunity to reflect on what it is that's been impl implemented and to ensure that there aren't whole swathes of the country that are kind of disenfranchised and don't have access to, uh, to services. So I think that, you know, I'm always um, more positive than negative, I think, uh, about what it is that we can do and what it is that we can influence. I'm certainly seeing from colleagues them talking much more about health inequalities. Um, I don't know necessarily yet uh, whether they understand how they translate, translate that into action. And I think the more support that we can get and the more that we can uh, kind of push this uh, agenda uh, across government and the more people talk about it and we can start to develop some kind of movement in this regard, I think we will start to get some traction. So that's, um, that's my kind of views from the dizzy heights of working in uh, NHS England and NHS Improvement. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> uh, I'm going to draw this discussion to a close because it's nearly half one. Time has flown by now. We could quite easily have spent the rest of today talking about some of these big topics um, that our panel very kindly did. So thank you to our audience for being part of this discussion and for submitting your questions. I'm sorry we, we couldn't answer all the questions because there were about 50 or 60 questions coming in. Thank you so much to our panel for bringing their insights and their expertise. Um, what is clear, I think, what we've talked about is that what we do now uh, and how we move forward is going to have a significant impact on public trust, on the value that we add to um, health services and care and the quality of life that our service users experience. Um, and also to reducing health inequalities. And for all of us, this is really a once in a career opportunity that we may not get again to reduce some of the discrimination and the inequalities that exist. And so it is all our responsibilities to do our best and to collaborate across health and third sector and working with communities um, to really change and shift the need and I, lastly, I want to thank um, Emma Victoria and the HIT team for organizing this very valuable, I certainly found a very stimulating discussion. So thank you, everybody, and uh, have a good rest of the week. Take care. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, panel. It's good to be thank you. chatting with all of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.